0: Hey, what's happening? It's good to see you guys. I'm so excited to be here. I can't help myself. I'm like this every weekend. I love doing this, and I love it because it's a good thing to do. God loves when we gather around His Word and around His worship to sing praises to Him and and recall all the things that He is to us and all of His characteristics. He's pleased when we do this, church. He's so pleased when we do this. Thank you for doing this with me and with us. What a treat, man. What a treat. Um, so I, the, the, <laughs> okay. So, anytime that there's somebody in the audience that's a pastor, I get nervous because I don't know if they're going to you know, critique me or not. And so the only way I can get through my nerves is to actually have them stand up. So Mac and Nancy, would you stand up? Okay, good. And then Blaine, Blaine, you can stand up. And Justine. Okay. So Pastor Doug, this is his in-laws, right? So so Mac is his father-in-law. He passes a church up in uh, Lake Arrowhead. And then Blaine is down here from Bend, not too far from Pastor John. You're in Bend, Oregon, passes a church up there. So um, that just helps me get over my nerves when i got two men that bring the Word of God every Sunday here. Thank you so much. And thanks for sitting so close where I can see your faces. That's just fantastic. Goodness gracious. Kelly, where are you? Is Kelly in here? Atterbury? Oh, I thought she was looking for you guys. Maybe not. Anyway, um, I'm so glad you guys are here. What a joy. What a treat. And thank you for your faithfulness to bring in God's Word in your churches. Thank you. so Seriously, so very, very much. Um, they will be available after the service for any Q&A on, on the book of Ezra. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. I love this man. I love you guys. I love God's word. I love being the church. I love that we get to do this every week. What a treat! What a privilege! What an honor! Let me open with this. There's a there's a geyser by the name of Old Faithful. Not 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 a geezer, but a geyser, by the name of Old Faithful, and it, it's found in Yellowstone National Park in the state of Wyoming. Old Faithful earned its name from the fact that Unlike other geysers, it follows a rather dependable time schedule. It's a highly predictable geothermal feature that erupts every 60 to 110 minutes, and it shoots a stream of boiling water as as high as 185 feet into the air. The duration of each eruption lasts anywhere from a minute and a half to five minutes, and it dispels anywhere from 3,700 to 8,400 gallons of water each time. During the expeditions of the late 1800s, (laughs) Old Faithful was sometimes degraded by being used to do the laundry. That's what I would use it for. Garments were were placed in the crater during dormancy, and they were ejected, thoroughly washed when the eruption took place. General Sheridan's men in 1882, they found that... (laughs) This is so cute that men found this out, right? They found that linen and cotton fabrics were uninjured by the action of the water, but woolen clothes were torn to shreds. Oh, us men, we still need help with the laundry, don't we? Here's a picture of Old Faithful, if you if you haven't seen it. I, I have not seen uh, Old Faithful. My, my wife has. She's chosen not to take, take me, apparently. If, if you can't t- uh, find the time to drive 15 hours to... Wyoming. It's a thousand and thirty miles from my house. Um, you can always look at the local geysers at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Not that I've been there, but I hear it's, but I hear it's beautiful. Oh man, what's wrong with me? We don't have time. Here's what's cool. In my study, in my study this week, I love to study. I just, I love to study. Putting together a sermon every week, that's a different story, but I love studying and reading and learning about God's Word. And in my study this week, I, I loved how Warren Wiersbe, one of the people I look, look at often, he, he introduces this section of Ezra, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and we're in chapter 4 this morning, but this, he, he introduces this section of Ezra by focusing on the faithfulness of our God. Focusing on the faithfulness of our Lord. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9 says this, For us to know, to know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God and He's the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation to those of us who love Him and keep His commands. He's faithful. Our God is faithful. Moses spoke this verse, these words, to a new generation of Israelites before they entered into Canaan, into the promised land. A truth that they would need as they faced the enemy and claimed their inheritance. Oh, God has enemies. He has enemies. He has from day one. New generations and old. I think I'm now part of the old generation. It's killing me to say that, but it's true. New generations and old need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded that God is faithful. Our God is faithful. We serve a faithful God. 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, he says, Faithful, faithful is He who calls us. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Whatever God calls us to, whatever He tells us to do, whatever He asks of us, He's faithful to make it happen. We see that in the book of Ezra. It opens up that way in Ezra 1.1 when the Lord stirred in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, for his people to be able to do certain things faithful is he who calls us and he will bring it to pass. And Paul wrote that to the new Christians in Thessalonica who were being persecuted for their faith because God has enemies. There's opposition to the word of God. We're either walking with God or we're walking in rebellion to God as many of us have in our past. We must always be reminded, as Warren Wiersbe says, and I love this, that God's commandments are God's enablements. God's commandments are God's enablements. God will never ask us or tell us to do anything that He won't enable us to do. That should be encouraging. Why? Because He is faithful. He's faithful. It's who He is. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, God, being who He is, cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable, which means unchangeable. So all of his words and acts must be and must remain what? Faithful, because it's who he is. J. Hudson Taylor, who's a missionary to China, he described the Christian life this way, and I think it's an interesting take. That the Christian life is, is not a striving to have faith, but looking off or looking to the faithful one. And so many times we say, I just need more faith. Forget about that. Get your eyes and your attention and your affection focused on the faithful one and watch your faith increase. Because what do we have faith in if it's not in the faithful one? What are you having faith in? Yourself? Is that self confidence? To put our faith in in the faithful one, and then watch your faith grow. When those challenging times come up, we say, ah, I'm going to put my trust and my hope and my eyes and my affection and my attention on the faithful one, because it's who he is. Hmm. And Taylor knew of Paul's words to Timothy. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he says, if, more like when, if and when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's who he is. Have you, at times like me, been faithless? Or is it just me? Do I walk alone in that? Have we had moments where we've been faithless? Of course. But we recalibrate, which we talked about last week, and we get our eyes focused on him who was faithful. It's so easy to get tripped up and forget about His faithfulness, which never wanes and never fails. It makes me ponder a pretty important question for all of us. And that's this. How faithful is your God? How faithful is your God? Does your perception of our Lord's faithfulness measure up to the actual level of faithfulness that is true to His character? Okay? So here's a gas tank. This is empty. Is your God here? His faithfulness? Is it measured this way? Or is your tank full of understanding God's faithfulness? Because this is who He is. But sometimes we see Him this way. Sometimes we see Him this way. Sometimes we see Him this way. But He is at all times completely full. That needle is buried in full at all times. God never runs out of gas in His faithfulness, ever. And the Lord exercises that faithfulness in the midst of a fallen enemy, a fallen world, and a fallen people. And sometimes in the midst of all that fallenness, we lose sight of His faithfulness. Sometimes in the midst of all the fallenness, we lose sight of His faithfulness. And those are hard times for many of us. The Jewish remnant that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple was depending on God's faithfulness to see them through. But they're going to hit some opposition in all of chapter 4. It comes heavy and it comes hard, and it comes for a long time from a lot of people, is Ezra 4. So they needed to depend on God's faithfulness to see them through. But the God who called them would be faithful to help them finish His work as long as they trusted Him and obeyed his word. He is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we bow down before you in recognition that you are a faithful God. And we ask for forgiveness when we lose sight of that. And we act in such a way where you are not faithful and you're not true to your character. Forgive us for those times, Lord, when we don't see you as being faithful. And Lord, on top of that, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience and your compassion and your kindness and your love toward us while we continue to grow in understanding how faithful you are to us. What a joy it is to serve you. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, all right, Ezra 4. Okay, go to Ezra 4. And so... I kind of, uh, I'm not sure I did this well last night, so I'm going to try to correct how I do it this morning. I'm going to put this uh, graph up, because this I think will help. And I'm going to refer to this uh, when we read Ezra 4, because this might be helpful, okay? Ezra 4 starts in Cyrus' reign. Ezra 4 starts in 536. And as you know, as you continue to go down, we get closer to Jesus, right? Okay, so we're at 536 when Ezra 4 starts. But he's going to start talking all the way into Artaxerxes the first. So there's going to be over a hundred year period of time covered in 24 verses. The writer ain't messing around. He's got a lot to say. We've got to cover a hundred years in 24 verses. But it's interesting, and I'll point this out. Verse 1 through 5 is from 536 to 520. And then he goes off for a hundred years, and then he comes back in the very last verse, verse 24. He comes back to Cyrus in Darius the first. I'll explain as we go. So let's read Ezra chapter 4. You guys ready? I'll take that as a yes. Now, <laughs> I'm such a troublemaker. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were you know, brought back right, to build the temple uh, to the Lord, they approached, the enemies did, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the households, the fathers' households, and said to them, Hey, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us just a couple years prior to that. And then the people of the land... The enemies that they talked about in verse 1, these these enemies, these people of the land, the Samaritans, if you will, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, Cyrus king of Persia, right? So that's where we're at, Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so now what the author is going to do is he's, he's going to continue this thought of opposition. And so he goes on a little bit of a tangent from verses 6 all the way to 23. It, it's, it's like he's saying in verse 6, heck, even in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, and that's on our chart, right? So you've got uh, Cyrus, Sambesis, I don't know if that's how you say his name, Darius, and now he's getting to Ahasuerus or Xerxes. One's a Greek name, one, one's a Hebrew name. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, now Ahasuerus is where the book of Esther takes place, which we're going to be doing in a couple books down, down the road. In the reign of that king, in the beginning of his reign, these people were making ac- accusation against Judah in Jerusalem. Heck, even in the days of Artaxerxes, who came after him, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes of Persia uh, a-, a letter written in uh, Aramaic, and it was translated. And Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. So this opposition is going on for about a hundred years. and so Then wrote Raham, the, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues. Look how many people are opposing them, right? Their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, which is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria. And in the rest of the region, now beyond the river, which is Euphrates, River. And this is a copy of this letter. So you're going to have a letter that's sent about these people of Judah, and then you're going to see a response starting in verse 17. So let's, this is the letter to King Artaxerxes, your, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. And they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So that's the key right there is they're talking about the city and the walls because at this point, the temple was actually restarted in 520 and finished in 515. So still during Darius' reign, the temple's actually done. So now they're talking about the city and the walls. Verse 13, Let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue. The king. Now, because we are uh, in service to the, of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king. They're totally, you know, <laughs> schmoozing up to the king. So that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is rebellious and, and, and damaging to kings and provinces. And they have incited revolt within the past days or in past days. And therefore that city has been laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result you will have no possession in that province. So then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and to Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of the people in the Samaria. Peace, and now the document which you have sent to us has been translated. The king says and read before me A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that many kings, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now, issue a decree. Make these men stop work on the city, right? That the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Oh, and that is forthcoming because God sent them there to do exactly that because he's faithful. Verse 22, Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? And then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Raham and Shimshai, they went in haste to Jerusalem and stopped them by force. And then verse 24 picks up from verse 5. So he just kind of goes on that tangent from verses 6 through 23 to say, hey, there's been opposition. that started in Cyrus and it's going to go all the way through Artaxerxes for 100 years. So he kind of goes back to his starting thought in verses 1 through 5. Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, going back to verse 5, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and then in verse 5, they go into the temple rebuild. Okay, so I, I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't... Um, Better luck to me next time. So, what the writer of Ezra is doing, he's he's throwing in these parentheses, if you will, verses 6 through 23, in order to point out a couple of things. And you saw that. The writer's pointing out the numerous years of opposition. The numerous years, 100 plus years of opposition that they had to endure, as indicated by the number of kings that we mentioned and as our chart shows us. The second thing, the, author, the, the, the writer of Ezra is pointing to the numerous people that we just read about that opposed them over the years. And then the last thing is the numerous tactics that they used in their opposition, sometimes blatant lies, which we just don't have time to dissect all of that from Ezra 4. Here's the deal. What are the takeaways from Ezra 4? What are you want, What are we going to take away from Ezra 4? i got three things. Three things. The first one. That position with the Lord brings opposition with the world. Position with the Lord brings opposition with the world. We're either, the Scripture says, if you are uh, with me, you're not against me, right? Whoever is for me is not against me. Whoever is not against me is with me. We are either for the Lord or we're not for the Lord, which means we are against him. And so position with the Lord brings opposition with the world that we were once a part of in opposition to God. Note the language from Ezra 4 if you want. In verse 1, it says that they were the enemies. The people of the land were the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. That's opposition. They were enemies of theirs. Verse 3 said that that they had nothing in common. Verse 3 says they had nothing in common with us. Verse 4 says that they discouraged and frightened the people of Judah. Verse 5 says that they hired counselors against them. Verse 6, they wrote an accusation against God's people to King Ahasuerus. And in verse 7 and 8, they wrote a letter against God's people to King Artaxerxes. And so as a result, work on the temple was stopped for a period of time, from 536 to 520. And as a result, work on the city and work on the walls was also stopped. But this is not a new concept. It's been like that from the very beginning. Since the fall of man, this opposition to God, this opposition to the work that God wants to accomplish in this world of ours. Jesus encountered it as well in Mark 3, verse 6. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately begin to conspire with a people group that they didn't even like. They conspire with the Herodians. They didn't even get along in order to destroy Jesus. Paul experienced the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16:8-9. He says, "I'm going to remain here because there's a there's a wide door for effective service that's been opened to me, but there are many adversaries." Position with the Lord brings opposition with the world. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And sometimes we don't count the cost. And if we don't count the cost and understand what it is that we're signing up for, sometimes things go haywire. When Mark and Lori Lloyd's uh, son went into the army, he counted the cost before signing on the dotted line, understanding what he was getting himself into or what he was getting yeah, prepared for. And so we simply fail to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ in a world that's fallen and that's in disobedience to God. And if we do that, if we fail to count the cost, we, we end up losing sight of who we are in this thing called Christianity, in this thing called discipleship, in this thing called followership of Jesus Christ. We lose sight of who we are and we lose sight of who he is because we don't understand that position with God brings opposition from the world and so we can get muddled in that because we're trying to be good followers of Christ in a fallen and broken world. So here's an interesting question. Okay, so who issued a decree for the temple to be built? Cyrus, right? Can you put, hey Daniel, can you put that chart, Persian Kings, back up? Okay, so Cyrus issued the decree. He issued a decree to give them permission to build the temple. And yet during his reign in 536, they stopped building the temple. Why? Why did the work on the temple stop? All this took place in the reign of Cyrus, who had not only given them permission, but resources as well to build the temple. They didn't stop because of a decree to stop, but because they feared the people of the land, because they were afraid. They stopped because they were afraid. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? When we lose sight of our faithful God. We lose sight of the faithfulness of who God is and we start focusing on stuff and fear. Has anybody else here besides me not done what they should have done because of fear? I've done it. I'm ashamed to say. But I'm getting better. And I assume you guys are as well. That we're getting better. but sometimes we don't do things because of fear. We don't do what God's called us to do because of fear. And it was because of fear that they stopped building the temple. It's really kind of sad. And consequently, like us, they begun to get more interested in their own houses than in the house of God. Turn to the book of Haggai. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. If you're in Matthew, then you work your way backwards. Go to Matthew, and then you'll have Malachi, and then is it Zechariah, and then Haggai third to the last book of the minor prophets. Yeah, Malachi, then Zechariah, if you're going backwards from the the New Testament. And then Haggai. Check this out. Such good words for us. Haggai, chapter 1. There's only two chapters. Verse 1. In the second year. Of Darius, right? That's when they had stopped building from 536 to 520, which is the second year of Darius. In the second year of Darius the First, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, um, and he said this to, uh, to uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and he said this: Thus says the Lord of hosts, <laughs> This people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. No, of course, the time has come. That's what was declared in in Ezra 1.1, that God decreed a house be built, and Ezra gave him permission. And so the people said the time has not come even for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai saying this, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies desolate now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Can you imagine if God said this to us? Mac, consider your ways. I, I, my heart would be broken. Dave, consider your ways. Wow, oh, Lord, that stings a little. You have sown much, verse 6 says, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You, you put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Dave, Russ, consider your ways. Those are such good words for us, church, to stop and consider our ways. Some of my ways I'm not real proud of in the past. Verse 8, go, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. I know what it means to operate in fear. I do, it's not good. And it prevents us when we do so from doing the work that God has set out for us to do. No one told them to stop building. And yet they stopped building because of fear. I get it. And it's just one more reason why we need to do well at being the church. One more reason we need to do well at being the church 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, says that we are to encourage one another. They were discouraged and they were fearful. And we're to encourage one another and build one another up, just as we are doing, it says. Hebrews 3, 13, I think, is even more profound, where it says to encourage each other when? Day after day. All the time. As long as it's called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when we lack encouragement. We operate out of fear. We slip into sin and God's work's not being done. We're a pretty encouraging church. I'm old enough to have been to a lot of churches. This is one of the most encouraging churches. You guys are so... I'm going to give you an upgrade. This is the most encouraging church I've ever been to. It's true. You guys are so encouraging to me. The funniest thing... My, yeah. I, my, my favorite kind of encourage, encouragements are the ones I get when people text me during service. Oh, it happens all the time. It's awesome. And I, and I, so then I get to my office and I'm like, I look at the time Like I'm like, that's during, that's during the message. Rob Selleck texted me last night at 6.03. At 6.03! I was preaching at 6.03. It was fantastic. He was encouraged. And he was encouraging me. And I appreciated that. We need to encourage one another. I think we do that well. Check it out. In Ezra 4.4, there's a word in Ezra 4.4 4 called discourage. The word discourage in Ezra 4.4, 4, the people of the land, the enemies, discouraged the people of Judah. That word discourage refers to a continual process of of discouragement and that's why the writer wanted to show that for a hundred years they were being discouraged, being discouraged being discouraged being discouraged being discouraged being discouraged being discouraged you ever feel like that a continual process of discouragement that position with the Lord brings opposition with the world and that opposition brings continual discouragement so for me the question is this that being the case what is our continual process of encouragement? to combat that. So that we can do what God's called us to do. So we can move His purposes forward. What is our continual process of encouragement? Alright, that was our first takeaway. Our second one. Although compassionate, our Lord will not compromise. Our God is compassionate, but He will not compromise. He will never compromise His truth. If you remember last week in Ezra 3, we looked at the restoration of the altar and the sacrifices. you guys remember that? Last week in Ezra 3. We saw them lay the foundation of the temple last week in Ezra 3. We saw them praise the Lord with a great shout. But we also saw, if you remember, that they did all of those things according to as it is written. They did all of that according to the Word of God. It says it three or four places in Ezra 3. 3.10, 3.4, and 3.2, 3.4, and 3.10. These Samaritan people in Ezra 4 were a mixture of many races, and they were not true Jews. The Samaritans didn't worship the true and living God. So while God is compassionate, He will not compromise. Scripture shows us that while they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods as well. And you can look that up in Second Kings chapter 17. And this form of worship, worshiping multiple gods, is known as syncretism. And it's not real worship. It's actually sin and rebellion toward God. And so us, for us to have a pure and right worship of the Lord, we have to have a pure and right understanding of who He is in order for us to worship Him properly. don't think the enemy doesn't or can't do the same thing in churches today. The church is continually faced with a similar challenge of keeping the message true and pure. You see it happening. There are arguably churches or denominations that are changing their truth and changing their doctrine. God does not compromise His truth. He doesn't do it. And I think we do that well. Our elders, Pastor Dave and Russ and Doug Renault and Bruce Cook, and and Pastor Rob and and Pastor Doug of just making sure that God's truth is never compromised in this church. I don't think I've preached in the year and a half plus that I've been here without one of the elders being in one of the services. That always makes me nervous because they're just smarter and wiser than me and I realize if I say anything stupid, I'm going to hear about it. But I love that and I thank them for that. It's good for me. It's good for us. We are in good hands, church, with the elders of this church. I hope you're praying for us elders, please. And so it's clearly just one more reason that we must know the Word of God. We can't just experience and expect His compassion. We must also understand that He is the standard of truth which cannot be compromised. Amen? Jesus even said, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. John four twenty three says this that there's an hour coming, and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So this offer by the Samaritans to help build the temple was a dangerous offer. In mingling with the Jewish remnant, it would not have taken long for these two groups to start socializing and then marrying. And that was contrary to God's word, the law of Moses. Israel was a nation set apart from other nations because God had given them a special task to perform in the world. And if in any way the people of Israel were corrupted, the success of their God-given ministry would be in jeopardy. Just as the Jewish remnant here in the book of Ezra we too must maintain a separated position and not involve ourselves in anything that compromises our testimony or hinders the work of God. I have at times compromised my testimony and it's devastating to me. And I repent and I turn to God because He is what? He is faithful. And sometimes I do stupid stuff and I hinder the work of God and I repent and I turn to God because He is what? He's faithful. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians. After Acts, after Romans, and you have 1st and then 2nd Corinthians. Chapter 6. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says this says, do not be bound together. He doesn't say don't talk to them. but Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I think sometimes we compromise, and God does not want us to compromise. He's called us to holiness. Turn also to 2 Timothy, a little to your right. After the Corinthians, you'll have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then First and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, and starting in verse 3, he says, suffer hardship with me, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Hmm. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You guys are soldiers for the king. You're soldiers for the king. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. God does not compromise. and He doesn't want us to compromise, and we're so tempted to do so at times. Just like Jesus did, we must separate from the world. But listen, so that we can be effective witnesses to the world. We must separate from the world so that we can be effective witnesses to the world. If we are just like them, why would they want to become followers of Christ and say, you're just like me, what's the difference? Hebrews 7, 26 tells us that Jesus was separated from sinners, and yet the Gospels tell us that he was a friend of sinners. You get what I'm saying? we need to be separate, not be partners with the world, but separate from the world so that we can befriend the world and not compromise our witness to the world. And lastly, the third takeaway was the very first thing we talked about, and that is what? God is faithful. God is faithful. How many times have you told yourself this week that God is faithful? May that be a new mantra for us in the next day, the next week, the next month. May you wake up every day and say, God, you're faithful. It's who he is. God, you're faithful. The Lord has clearly led this restoration project in the book of Ezra. And yet we see numerous people over numerous periods trying to thwart the Lord's numerous plans. But our God is sovereign and faithful, and his enemies shall not prevail. And we'll see that as Ezra plays out. How well, (laughs) how well do we keep up with the resume of God? How well do we keep up with the resume of God? Right? You see somebody's resume, you want to know, are they the real deal? What do you got? How well do we keep up with the resume of God? His word is his resume. When we're on our knees, that's part of His resume as we pray and we speak to Him and He speaks to us. When we engage with one another and we encourage one another, that's part of God's resume. When we hear stories from people like Mark and Lori Lloyd about the, the Jesus Project, that's part of God's resume. We need to continue to build our resume of God. Amen? Let's close with Philippians chapter 1. We're going to close with Philippians chapter 1 and then I'm going to pray us out of here. And then if you need prayer, our prayer team's available down here in the corner. Philippians will be to the left of 2 Timothy. Go back to, through Thessalonians and then uh, Colossians and then Philippians. Let me ask you this. We're going to end up in verse 6. But I don't want to just go to verse 6 because we're going to personalize verse 6 and we shouldn't do that. We should, but we shouldn't. Let me explain. Who's Paul writing to? A person in the book of Philippians? Oh, he's writing to a Church. churches. That's why I want to start at verse 1. And we'll end with verse 6. Paul and Timothy, who are bondservants of Christ, to all the saints, to all the saints who are in Philippi, including the elders and deacons, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you all, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says to them, to the church, much like Haggai is saying to those in the book of Ezra, Paul says, I am confident, because he's putting his confidence in who? The God who is what? Faithful. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, your churches there in Philippi, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Our God is what? He's faithful. Sometimes we lose sight of that, because there's brokenness all around us. And I think this is why God is pleased that we're here, to be reminded of His faithfulness. Amen? Amen? I'm going to pray. And that if you need prayer, our prayer team's over here. Let's wrap this up as we pray. God, you are so good. You're so gracious. You're so merciful. You're so kind to us. Lord, we thank you that you're faithful. Lord, move our needle. Move our needle to see you as being more faithful now than we did a half hour ago. And may you be seen more faithful tomorrow than you are today. Help us to see you in your faithfulness, oh God. It would change everything for us, Lord. We praise your mighty name because you are faithful. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for being here, you guys. Lord bless you. Have a great rest of the day.